Turn with me this evening to the book of Amos, in the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets. Let's continue looking this evening at the book of Amos. We began this last week. God willing, we will conclude our study in this book tonight. We will read for our opening reading from Amos chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 through 9, and towards the end of our study this evening, we will also look at the book of Acts, the 15th chapter, so if you want to go ahead and stick a bookmark or something there, we will also look later at Acts chapter 15. So Amos chapter 7, again, the third of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, it's in our English order there. So Amos chapter 7, let's hear God's word, beginning at verse 1. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Amen. This is God's word. Last week, as we began studying the book of Hosea, we highlighted a particular strategy that this prophet puts into practice. He comes from the south to the north, so he is an outsider there in their kingdom. But as he begins his message, he draws attention to the surrounding nations, the Gentile nations, the nations that aren't in a direct, not the Mosaic covenant with God and whom were agreed to be Israel's enemies and living in darkness and sin and begins to call attention to their many sins. And rightly so, because God holds all people on this earth accountable. When people are characterized by certain Patterns and the warning is that judgment may come already in this life, with of course the warning being for the life to come. But you can imagine Amos's listeners soaking up what he was saying and enjoying the message. He soon turned his attention to the southern kingdom, the kingdom from which the northern kingdom had broken away and then called out their sins and no doubt made an impact. But eventually he turned his attention to the northern kingdom and begin to speak to them of their sins as well. He highlights covenant infidelity, uh, false worship, worship not regulated by God's word, worship that was just towards selfish ends, uh, abuse of the poor and the needy, the weakest, both in society as well as using the corpse. 
and begins to point to all these as indicators that this was the people that didn't know God. They didn't love God, they didn't love their neighbor, and just as God would call these other nations to account, well, eventually he would call this nation to account. Throughout the book of Amos, God is like a lion, speaking through the prophet and roaring against sin. Roaring against the nations, but even also roaring against his own people and demanding to be heard. Last week, we looked at the first half of the book, the first six chapters where God, as we've said, kind of starts on the outside and starts working his way in before lowering his indictment against Israel. And tonight, I want us to look at the last two sections, chapters 7, 8, and 9. I want to look at God continuing to address the northern kingdom of Israel, warning them of judgment to come, but then, as so many prophets do, concluding also with a note of mercy. So let's look first at the third section of the book where God rises against Israel. And this occupies chapters 7 and 8 and the first 10 verses of chapter 9. So in other words, the rest of the book, except for verses 11 through 15 of chapter 9, God rises against Israel. Now what you have in these two and a half chapters are five visions in one narrative. In other words, five different times God shows the prophet something that he is planning to do, some kind of threatened judgment against the covenant people. And all five visions, as well as the narrative, the story that we'll look at in just a minute, they all reinforce this idea that Israel as a nation is just bent on sinning. And because of that, they're destined to receive the penalty of their actions, namely exile, will be dispersed and lose their national sovereignty. Now, you might not think that judgment is inevitable based on the first two visions. And we read those in our opening reading tonight. So what was the first? In verses 1 through 3, God showed Amos a threatened judgment of a swarm of locusts. Now, by the way, we've seen that before in the book of Joel, where God sends these creatures uh, against his land to devastate it and humble them, to bring them to their knees, to realize they need God, and if they do not repent, they won't even have their basic provisions. But if you notice in the first vision, when Amos saw what was going to happen, he cried out for forgiveness. He said, Lord, essentially, how can we survive this? And according to verse 3, God relented. Other translations may even read that God repented. The idea of he softened the judgment. He didn't send the threatened judgment. Because there was a change, perhaps, among the people, or at least in this instance, Amos interceded, then God changed his stance towards them. This, the, the request for forgiveness leads to a holding off of judgment. We then see the very same course of action in the second vision, verses 4 through 6, where God showed the prophet a consuming fire, saying it would even uh, dry up the great deep and devour the land. So some kind of judgment of fire that would once again uh, take away the resources they need for life. And again, the prophet cries out, Lord, you know, how will we survive? And God forgives and God does not send the threatened judgment. But it's when we get to the third vision that we really begin to see the problem. 
And it is this, Israel, despite the fact that they receive mercy, does not change. And so what is this third vision? The Lord shows Amos, he's standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, and the Lord has a plumb lime in his hand. I couldn't help notice, by the way, we had a work day here yesterday morning, and some of the men were talking about a plumb bob, some kind of tool they use to get the wire down the wall. And I thought, well, that reminds me of what we're going to look at from Amos the next night. So this is some kind of line used to measure a wall so that the wall is built properly. I imagine so that it's built to square, so that it's not awkward. You would use this when laying the foundation of a building so that you don't end up with a crooked structure. You measure things rightly in order to build them Rightly. Well, what's going on here? Why is God measuring his people? Because he is measuring them for destruction. In other words, this is a people that have received mercy. God threatens judgment. They cry out for forgiveness, or their, their intercessors do, and God holds off. They cry out for forgiveness, and God holds off. But despite the constant offers and reception of mercy, they just keep sinning. This is a nation that has been around for about 200 years, and you had the split after the time of Solomon. From their first days, they set up idolatrous calves in their own worship center there in the northern kingdom, and they were not faithful to God's covenant. And though God has held off on sending judgment against them and wiping them out and dispersing them, and though he has, he's visited them in judgment at times like Joel only to pull back, and give mercy, they haven't seen long-lasting, true change and reformation. Their mercy has only enabled them to sin longer. And so God has said, okay, I'm going to measure this out for judgment. I'm going to get it all ready and prepared, and I'm going to do it right when I visit my people. It reminds me of Revelation 11 that we looked at last Sunday morning, where the, you have John there in the vision measuring the temple. We took the temple there to be a symbol of the people of God. Measuring the city, again, a symbol of the people of God. Why would he be measuring these things? As a way of saying the Lord knows those who are his. He's counted, he's measured, he's prepared, he's protected his people. Well, the same thing happens then when he visits judgment on his visible people. When he comes against a community, they may have his name, but they don't have the true fruits of love, faith, and repentance. He measures them, he sizes them up, and he is exacting and perfect in his judgment. And again, the point seems to be in the third vision is because they have reached a point of no return. Again, the very end of verse 8 there, I will spare them no longer. We hinted at this idea this morning in 2 Thessalonians 2. A point of no return is a frequent prophetic theme and way of addressing the people. So in Isaiah 6, the prophet has said, all right, I want you to go and I want you to tell the people, keep seeing, but never see. Keep hearing, but never hear. And your preaching will make their ears thick and will cause their eyes to be blind, lest they turn from their ways and repent, and I heal them. Now that can sound very antithetical. Wait, God, the prophet is to tell the people, don't respond rightly. God doesn't want to show you mercy. Well, I don't think that's the big overarching idea when we look at the purpose of God. But when you look at a people that are constantly rebellious, 
that are persistently disobedient, then what we find out is the preaching is not going to change them. They have hard hearts, they have stubborn, they have stiffened their neck against God, and the preaching is really only going to confirm them in the situation in which they find themselves. Jesus would cite that passage from Isaiah when discussing why he speaks in parables. It's so that those outside won't understand, so that rather uh, those to whom it is given to know will understand the truths of the kingdom. Thinking again about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Often the discussion of you know, who, who hardened whose heart. Well, before Moses even goes to meet Pharaoh, God tells him, I'm going to harden his heart. So the overarching story is, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But when Moses gets there and he says, let my people go, the author is careful to record, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh heard the message. How did it play out on the human level? He said no thanks. But as the story goes on, then we read Pharaoh's heart was hard. Passive verb, something else is acting on his heart. Until finally the direct statement is made, and God hardened his heart. So when we look at it, all right, well, how does God save sinners? How does this work? Big picture, God ordains everything. We talked about that this morning. God ordains everything that comes to pass, both in salvation and in judgment. But when you zoom down in on the closer level, how does it play out in human actions? Humans make choices. If they give in to their sinful desires and harden their hearts and won't listen to God, then they even reach a point of no return where they are confirmed in such actions and the offers of mercy only make them worse. And God is warning this people that you have reached that point. And again, just to reinforce what we saw this morning, God's grace is such that he can reach in and save anyone, but it is dangerous to play with God's command. And that's what we find Israel. We find them in that situation. So those are the first three visions, and then visions four and five, again, just kind of reinforce that same idea. Look at the beginning of chapter eight, where Amos sees a basket of ripe summer fruit. Chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked, a basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The time has come for judgment to be executed, just like you need to pick fruit in the right time, eat it before it goes rotten. These people are ready. And don't, by the way, look at the, the, the wordplay there. In verses 1 and 2, Amos sees the ripe fruit. And then in verse 2, God says, the time is ripe for my people Israel. The NIV does a good job of bringing out the wordplay there. If you looked in the original Hebrew, it's once again similar words. They sound very similar. So it, it would hit their ears the same way it does yours when you see the word ripe. Reoccur. Right fruit, because the people are ripe for judgment. And then the fifth vision there in chapter 9, where we see the Lord standing by the altar and again threatening complete destruction. Not even their religious symbols can save them from judgment. Look at chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. 
Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, a mountain, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. In other words, there's nowhere they can go at this point to escape the judgment of God. So those are the five visions. Now let's look at the narrative. You can turn back for a minute to chapter 7 because the narrative or the story is given in the midst of all these visions. And the narrative concerns interaction between Amos, the prophet, and Amaziah, this priest, who basically rats him out to the king. Look at verse 10 of chapter 7. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying, that Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer, go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord said to me, but the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. So Amaziah is basically saying, Amos, you're just nothing but a prophet for hire. You've just come from the south up to the north to stir up political trouble in the north. You just want to make things hard for the king. And the prophet basically says, Look, I'm not a prophet. My dad wasn't a prophet. I, this is not something that was in our family history where it was just assumed I would do that for a job. I was a shepherd taking care of these trees. You kind of get the impression I was happy to keep doing that, but God called me to come deliver this message. And that is why I am here. I'm not here for money. I'm not here to make trouble. I'm here to tell you the word of the Lord and warn you lest this judgment come upon you. And if the people won't hear the prophet, God's words are being sent to the people. But if they won't hear them, then they're going to have a famine one day, but not just a famine of bread, a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. Just sorry, we're on the other page probably. Chapter 8, verse 11. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. What a warning. You know, if you won't hear God's word, you may lose the very opportunity to hear God's word. Israel, blessed with prophets in their history, blessed with the opportunity now to respond to the word of the Lord, you better take advantage. And that's how well it ties in with 2 Thessalonians 2. And may we, as the church, as God's covenant people in this day and age, the new Israel, may we always hear God's word. Because if we stop hearing God's word, then future generations may not hear God's word. Again, I understand concern about what laws and other things will do to the availability of God's word. But God speaks to his people and says, you listen to my word and you'll keep getting it. You don't listen to my word 
And that's when danger comes. But sadly, this is a people who are just so bent and, and shaped by selfishness and materialism that they've just become unresponsive to the word. Look back at verses 4 through 6 for a minute in there. Same chapter, chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. What, what an indictment of sin. You can see that the people are very materialistic. They trample the needy. They want to do away with the poor of the land. They want the religious festivals and the Sabbaths when, when work ceased. They want that to be over soon. Why? So we go back to the market, make more money. We just want to get more money. And as we get money, what do we do? We, we skimp on the measure and boost the price. Cut down the actual amount given, raise the price, and they cheat with dishonest scales. Who do they cheat? They cheat the poor out of their money. It says they buy the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, they value human life in terms of those material possessions. They would dispose or mistreat a human life in order to have more silver or merely obtain a pair of sandals. A materialistic, selfish people who would use even religion and other lives to get what they want. And that's the kind of people where God warns that is the people in danger of judgment. So may we beware of any temptations like that in our own heart. When we see those trends in the culture outside the church, beg God for mercy that the gospel may make headway among them. Again, the famine is threatened, a famine of the word of the Lord. But as God has already told us, man can't live by bread alone. He lives by the mouth, the words from the mouth of God. So these people think money is all we need, what they need is God's word. And they won't have it if they don't listen. So that's the threats. Those, that's the indictment of the people. That's the warning of judgment. And it, it's on a collision course. There's no real way to avoid it. But despite that threat, as the prophets so often do, the book concludes with the promise of mercy. So look at the end of the book, chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Fourth and final section, God restores the fallen kingdom. This kingdom is being humbled, it will fall. And God says, one day I will restore it. Look at verse 11. And that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. What does God promise here in these verses? In verse 11, he promises to restore David's fallen shelter. 
You see the verse mentions things like walls and ruins. So it sounds like we're talking about a kingdom, and the northern kingdom would be in mind. That's where the prophet was preaching. So one day God will restore David's kingdom. They'll get a king back. They'll get a king, a kingdom restored to them. Notice it calls it David's fallen shelter, which really just reflects the current humbled state of the Davidic kingdom. It was already rent by division, and of course the northern kingdom would soon pass away. It's going to get worse. So God will restore their kingdom. Verse 12, they will possess foreign nations, or at least they will possess foreign nations who bear God's name. Notice that. The remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Now, on the one hand, Israel is the only nation in the world that bears God's name. Amos said that in chapter 3. You only of all the nations have I known. You're the nation that I have chosen. And so, on the one hand, you have this language of conquest. You're going to go, you're going to regain that remnant of Edom, that land of Edom to the south. And yet, on the same hand, the nations that know me are going to join Israel. The list of nations that know God is going to be expanded. So I'm going to restore my people and I'm going to enlarge my people. And then verses 13 through 15, there would be restoration of the devastation of the land. Again, locust judgment threatened, fire threatened, and yet one day they're going to rebuild their cities, they're going to have vineyards, and they're going to be able to enjoy all those things again. Which again, shows the problem wasn't that they enjoyed those things. It was that they enjoyed them without knowing God and at the expense of other lives. So God says, one of these days, I'm going to reverse it. So how do these things come to pass? Look at the Acts 15 passage. And this is where we will conclude this evening. Because according to Acts 15, God has already acted to fulfill, to begin fulfilling, and to bring to a fulfillment this passage that we have read. Sometimes when you get these prophets, we, we wonder how it will come to pass. Sometimes we get the prophets and we have a New Testament passage that says, this is how it comes to pass. So look at Acts 15. Let me read these verses and make a few comments and then we will conclude this evening. Acts 15, beginning at verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now the context here of Acts 15 is an argument in the early church on how to deal with Gentile Christians. Jesus and John preached to the nation of Israel, but now Gentiles are becoming Christians. Do those Gentiles first have to become Jews before they become Christians? And the end result of the debate is no, because of what Amos says. 
Amos says that eventually the Lord will reach out and the rest of mankind will seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Gentiles don't have to first become Jews in order to become Christians because God already prophesied through Amos that one day Gentiles would join the covenant people, that Israel itself would be enlarged and other nations would bear God's name and they would all come into the covenant people together. So I want you to see what James is doing. He's saying here, look, Amos promised that God would restore David's kingdom. He would bring many Gentiles into the people of God. James essentially announces that this problem is being, or excuse me, this promise is being fulfilled in his day. Now I grant you that base that is based on an expanded understanding of kingdom. They have to understand what God intended to do through Israel's kingdom and how it has come to pass in Jesus, that he's that restored king. That as he said in Matthew 16, I'm going to build my church and give to you the keys of the kingdom. That through the church, that is how God's reign would come. That is how God's kingdom would be seen before Jesus comes again. And that as God builds his church and brings about his kingdom, he would add the Gentiles to Israel as Gentiles. In other words, God would save them by his grace and not by their works. So it may rest on that expanded and broadened definition and understanding of kingdom, yet that seems to be exactly what James is operating with when he says these promises are being fulfilled and this is why we should admit the Gentiles because the prophets anticipated this day. I will point out, James doesn't cite verses 13 to 15 that talks about the restoration of the land, but I do think there are other New Testament passages that indicate that such promises are being fulfilled now. Hebrews 3 and 4 speaks of us having rest, like the rest that Joshua sought to give the people and that David sought to give the people in the land we find now in Christ. And then, of course, the physical land itself will be restored when Jesus comes and builds new heavens and new earth. But I really just want to highlight that main idea, if nothing else, that though the people were so sinful, and though they could not escape judgment, God would not abandon his redemptive purpose. And in a later generation to come, God would offer the promises again. And in a later generation to come, God would fulfill them. So what could we conclude from the book of Amos? Quite simply, that we should thank God for grace that God saves us, and we're disobedient Gentiles. We, we may read about Israel and say, wow, they're so bad, but we were in even, even greater darkness from their vantage point. And God has chosen to save us, sinners, in fulfillment of promises he made to another sinful group of people. And though he disciplined them, he did not abandon his redemptive purposes. We read this morning, I spoke of some countries where some countries have moved away from the Gospels, other countries have moved towards the Gospel. And when you look at church history, you'll see some countries where they had a great Christian heritage, moved away from it, and came back to it. Such are God's ways of working in history. North Africa would be one example of that, where God moves in mysterious ways and yet in gracious ways. So we should thank God for His grace 
that he fulfills his promises. And then secondly, as I've already encouraged in this message, that we would hear the word of the Lord. Never grow weary of hearing the word of the Lord. The prophets are speaking to us. They are asking us to look at ourselves and our covenant community. Do we listen to God's word? Do we let materialism or luxury dull us to spiritual realities? Again, it's such an irony. Some of the things God would give them were the things they were abusing. The gifts are given by God and could be enjoyed to his glory, but if they dull us to spiritual realities, they can become a great danger. Do we worship God according to his word and do we extend mercy to the weak and the most vulnerable among us? All of those are, in Amos's words, expressions of knowing God and loving God and our neighbor. So let's pray to that end. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your love. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. And thank you for continuing your redemptive purpose. Israel suffered judgment from a human perspective. These promises should have disappeared, gone out of existence. Yet you restored them, you preserved them, you sent Christ, and now we enjoy him. I pray that you'd show mercy to this assembly. We would follow the word of the Lord and we'd follow all of it. Our eyes would be opened wherever we could grow more and we would hate sin and follow your word. We pray for our country and other nations that you would bless them with gospel preachers and save people and open their eyes and change hearts so that people will listen to the word of the Lord and the gospel and will worship you according to your word. We'll live the lives that you have designed for us, not in rebellion against you or creation. Show mercy to that end, Lord, and do not treat us as our sins deserve. And thank you again for the grace that you show us each day and the mercies that are new every morning. Now dismiss us with your blessing as we go about our work, the calling you've given us, whatever we may find this week. Help us to do it as unto the Lord and to know your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.